Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Pass the Torch. I'm your host, Danny Healy, head of content here at Torch Pro. And we have a very unique episode today. We have Lee Wybranski. His name is synonymous with the brilliance in the realm of golf, art, and design. He is a different type of guest than we've had in the past. He's not an athlete. He's not a coach, but he's done a lot of incredible work in the world of golf. He creates posters and designs and branding for some of golf's biggest tournaments, just like this weekend's PGA Championship at Oak Hill in New York, in upstate. So he's done some incredible work. You have to check it out. But we have a really interesting conversation about his journey, how he got into this field, how he got into art, his creative process, and some of the greatest projects he's worked on, some tournaments with Tiger Woods and whatnot. So you guys are going to love this episode. It's super unique fascinating, inspiring, few laughs in there as always. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Lee Wybranski. But before diving in, make sure you subscribe to The Morning Blitz. It's our daily sports newsletter here at Torch Pro, and it's everything you need to know about the world of sports delivered right to your email inbox in a five minute or less read. We are taking off, guys. You gotta join the movement now. If you haven't subscribed, hit the link in the podcast description. You will love the product. It's everything you need to know in the world of sports delivered right to your email inbox. Sports are an email. So go check it out. It's my baby that I started four years ago. We much appreciate the support over here at Torch Pro and the Morning Blitz as well. And now for today's sponsor. On the theme of golf with Lee here in the PGA Championship this weekend, we thank Roback. Are you tired of boring, uncomfortable activewear that just doesn't cut it when it comes to style and performance? Then it's time to upgrade to Roback, the apparel brand that's revolutionizing the sports world with high quality, stylish activewear that's both functional and fashionable. From their signature, the birdie polo, to their comfortable yet stylish hats, jackets, and shorts, Roback offers a full line of performance-driven activewear that's perfect for sports enthusiasts, gym goers, and anyone looking to upgrade their active wardrobe. Roback's premium fabrics and attention to detail ensure that their clothing is not only comfortable, but also functional, allowing you to move freely and perform at your best during any activity with a wide range of styles and colors to choose from. There's something for everyone. Whether you're looking to stand out on the golf course or simply stay comfortable during your next workout, Roback is a solution for you. Why wait? Visit Roback.com today and see for yourself why so many sports fans and enthusiasts are choosing Roback for their activewear needs. Plus a special offer for our listeners. That's right, you pass the Torch listeners. You get a free promo code of Torch at checkout, T-O-R-C-H at checkout at Roback.com. You'll get 20% off your order. Go use that promo code and thank us later. So now let's dive into my interview with Lee Wybranski. Sit back, relax, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. And if you wanna watch this episode, make sure you go to our Torch Pro YouTube channel and check it out. Let's go. Welcome to the podcast, Lee Wybranski. Super interesting background and story, so I'm excited to get to chat with you today. You're definitely one of the first people in your field being an artist that I've ever spoke to, so a lot of questions, but how are you doing? Thanks for joining the show. Oh, great to be here, Danny. I'm excited. Looking forward to it. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. The weather is turning and, and golf season is fully here, so I'm excited about that. Where are you? Boston, Massachusetts. Oh. Boston. Yeah. Well, I had a very nice stay in Boston last June at Brookline. Yes. Yes, I know. That was a I didn't get to go to the tournament, but I saw the energy and the energy around the city was it was fantastic. It was spectacular. I wish our boy Will Zalatoris, which we were talking about a little bit before this, who was mm-hmm. previously on the podcast, wish he pulled that one out, but uh gotta get of our hats off to Matt Fitzpatrick. I mean, uh it's not like Will uh did did anything uh I mean practically per- perfect right uh but yeah. it's hard to it's hard to knock the storybook stuff of uh winning the amateur and then the u.s open at the same uh venue uh i mean that's pretty cool stuff amazing amazing and i have a feeling will will be back back yeah. up near the top of the leaderboard shortly after his, his little back injuries healed so but now let's get into it so i usually uh start this podcast asking about where people grew up i want to start with I want to give you the mic and give a chance to introduce yourself. So when someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer that? It's been a hard question to answer through the years because it's like nothing anyone has ever heard of. But my best soundbite after all this time is that I'm an artist and a designer working mainly in golf. I think that works well. I think that works well. And so an artist. So where'd you grow up? 
I grew up in uh, the western suburbs of Philadelphia. I was born in Havertown, which is uh, a stone's throw, a few drivers away from Marion, uh, but uh, <laughs> on the other side of Westchester Pike, so to speak. Uh, and Got then it. we moved a little bit further out towards Westchester, Exton, uh, when I was about 11. And then uh, away to Syracuse University for college. And then back down to Pennsylvania, but moved back, moved into the center city proper in Philly uh, in the early 90s. And uh, my first studio was at 17th and Walnut off of Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And I was there for about 17 or 18 years before uh, transplanting out west here. Wow. And so when did kind of the world of art come into your life? Was it at a young age? Was it at school at Syracuse? Was it after you graduated college? But when did that come into your life? I mean, I was the kid who was always drawing. You know, there's always a few kids in every class, I feel like, that, that love to draw. And that, that was my thing. All my old notebooks and school books are covered in doodles on the margins. And, you know, if I didn't have baseball practice or something after school, I'd just turn on the tube and draw for an hour or two, and I would just be content, you know. So it was something that was just a pure sort of, I don't even want to say passion, more like a pastime. And I guess when you're a kid, you know, I, I got to be good at it. If you do anything enough, you get you get good at it. And then people tell you nice things. And I don't know, I was the kind of kid that enjoyed uh, getting praise, I guess. So uh, I just kept, I was always drawing. And then, um, you know, I had 12 years of uh, Catholic parochial education outside of uh, Philly there. And uh, I got a great education uh, for sure, but uh, didn't really include any art training at all. Uh, in fact, I can remember if we were misbehaving in grade school, they would they would threaten to take away art class. And I used to get so mad. I'm like, how come you never threaten to take away math class? You know, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't have any artistic training until it came time for university. And um, I had heard at that point my whole life that I had this wonderful talent. And I was also brought up to believe that, you know, talents are God given and your job is to use them. Uh, so I figured uh, I was going to I was going to explore this and I was going to pursue art and uh, kind of took a hard left turn. I was, you know, a relatively good student, clean cut kid. And then I went away to art school and came away with a mohawk and combat boots. And, uh, you know, my, my, my parents nearly disowned me that first year. But uh, that's that's how I got into art uh, with both feet. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. And so was your first job and your first work out of school in art or did you have a real world job where you were wearing a suit sitting out of a cubicle? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm very happy to say that I've never uh, lucky man I've worn a suit, but I've never sat sat the cubicle. I did start working as a professional artist right out of school. And in, in a sense, um, I kind of stumbled. How would you say, boy, at that time in my life, I was not sort of vocationally driven, meaning I wasn't someone who wanted, knew what they wanted to be or were going to move right from A to B in the shortest possible way. Uh, I was much more sort of exploratory. I felt like, uh, in a way, I kind of felt like I lived a bit of a sheltered life. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to, Anyway, I thought I'd sock away a few grand, buy a URL pass and travel. But I stumbled into this opportunity doing um, uh, house portraits, basically, pen and ink drawings of sort of, you know, nice old estates on the main line outside of Philadelphia, very traditional. Uh, but uh, it was not something I'd ever done before. But I always felt, you know, and still to this day, sort of like a hired gun, meaning I, I could draw or paint almost anything. I mean, there's some things that are more enjoyable to draw or paint, but um, I'm happy to sort of just put my pencil to any subject. So uh, doing those house portraits was how I got started uh, as a commercial artist. In fact, I don't know if I've ever shared this in any public space before, but in the very beginning, I also did a few charcoal pet portraits. Uh, so there's a, there's a few limited edition pug portraits out there with my name on the bottom. But uh, uh, so we might need to grab a few of those. <laughs> I got a, I got a pretty plain background here behind me right now. That the, yeah, I'm in a new terrible. new little space for the podcast, so we could throw some pug paintings up there. It's very makes me nervous seeing empty walls like that, Danny. You got to uh, I know. hang something up. A serial killer vibe. So, but no, I just, but I love it. So it's super fascinating, as I said, but what, so when did the game of golf come into your artistic world? Yeah. Uh, right around that time, I'd been doing these, that, that sort of work for a couple of years. I moved into the city and I was just sort of, you know, finding my feet, finding my way. And uh, it kind of woke up an entrepreneurial side of myself that I had no idea was there at all. 
pretty soon, once I start putting my shoulder into it and caring about like trying to make it work, the travel plans fell away and I just kind of became devoted to just trying to push this rock up the hill. And uh, all along the way, you know, I struggled and starved like uh, all the stereotypes. Uh, but uh, I was always receiving a lot of positive affirmation about the work. So, you know, it turns out you can live on, I don't want to say praise, but it just enough people seem to like the work that it made me feel like I wasn't a complete idiot uh, for doing this, you know. Um, so I kept doing it and um, tried to find ways to grow it, uh, grow the opportunity, grow the business. And then in, in short, what happened, I had a couple of partners at the time and which is kind of funny because it was a meager business that couldn't support one person, but I had a couple other guys involved and uh, we basically decided to take my house drawings and show them to some of the finest golf clubs uh, in the region that were famous for having beautiful clubhouses. So that's exactly what we did. We picked a bunch of clubs around the New York Met section that were, you know, top 50 clubs. Winged Foot Golf Club happened to be my very first commission in golf. You probably know the wow. clubhouse. It's a pretty famous clubhouse. And um, uh, that opened a lot of doors. And within that first year, I've probably done six or seven clubhouse portraits for great clubs around uh, Philly, Jersey, and, and New York. I mean, uh, Saucon Valley, um, Ridgewood, Winged Foot, National Golf Links. Uh, we dropped down to Caves Valley in Baltimore that first year, I remember. Anyways, uh, so by the end of that first year, I was suddenly sort of a golf artist. And that's how I uh, got my first uh, sort of, uh, that's how I got off the tee. God, I like that. Got off the tee. And so rewinding a little bit here, because you mentioned you were just kind of trying to get by, but you just didn't have any big hopes and dreams. Like you said, you had a, you had a mo mohawk and some combat boots. But <laughs> That was only for that first semester. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. They were quickly removed, but, uh, you didn't have any big hopes and dreams of you would be doing where you are right now, like creating art for some of the greatest golf clubs in the world and creating these brands and logos for golf clubs. But you kind of just started out, Hey, I want to just follow my passion and just dive into some art. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a little story that probably is the only thing that I can point to is as one of those clarifying moments. I didn't feel like I was, uh, I did not have a clear vision of what I wanted to do exactly. But uh, I remember orientation freshman year of art school. The dean comes out and, you know, makes his opening remarks, his welcome, etc. But through the course of this uh, speech, he mentions that, uh, you know, two years after, gradu after you graduate, less than 20% of you are going to be working in the arts. And three years after you graduate, less than 10% of you. And I was just totally put out by that. I mean, which I've come to realize must have been his intention uh, was to separate the wheat from the chaff. And, and I wouldn't even say it's not like I was suddenly a dedicated, disciplined art student even after that. Uh, but that's where I kind of made the decision that if I was going to choose this path, I was going to find a way to make it work out. You know, I was going to find a way to make a living making pictures. Uh, and I kind of decided that very early on. And I wasn't that picky about what pictures I made. I'm meaning simply, you know, I had colleagues at that time in my life who were great painters who already knew what they wanted to paint. They sort of had a, you know, they had a body of work in their mind that they could just get it out there. But, you know, I had the ability to imagine things, but I also uh, have sort of a problem solving mind. So I was happy to sort of apply my creativity to problem solving and not just expressing my own uh, inner demons or, or inner wishes or whatever. Yeah, I feel like that teacher was probably trying to motivate you a little bit, but it's like when you're a kid playing youth sports and they tell you that only one of 1.1% make it to pro, yeah. athlete, pro athletics, right? And they kill your dream right away on the baseball field. It's like, hey, you're never going to play in the big leagues. But wow. it was probably motivating. It's a little extreme. I don't know, man. That's just bleak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so now you are where you are and you're, you're creating these, like you said, you've created portraits for some of the greatest golf clubs in the country. And so coming up here in 2023 with the PGA Championship, you have a big piece in, in play, right? So tell me a little bit about that and what that project's all about. Last year and this year are milestone years in terms of the majors. But anyway, to answer your question, coming up at Oak Hill, 
Couldn't be more excited. Uh, actually, I was able to create the artwork for the poster this year without having to visit. So I've not seen Andrew Green's handiwork in person. I've watched uh, the fried egg videos and all the stuff you can find online. And uh, it looks just awesome. I can't wait to see it. As I mentioned, I went to school in Syracuse, which is just basically right down the throughway from Rochester. So it's going to be kind of fun to be back upstate New York. And then uh, for me personally, my first PGA Championship poster was 2013 at Oak Hill in Rochester. So uh, it's really, really cool. I'm excited for this one. When you say poster, so is it tip? It's literally like the logo for 2023 PGA Championship that everyone sees and is put everywhere. Like you're creating that poster. Is that what that means? Well, we do logo design and posters. Uh, so the logo design side of our business, we do logo development, brand development for private clubs. So I design, or we, I'm sorry, my, my fantastic team and I design uh, logos and branding for some, you know, for clubs all around the country. Uh, and we also work on every championship logo that comes out from, from the USGA. So uh, we've been working as the designers of the US Open logo since 2004 at Shinnecock. Uh, we have designed a couple of PGA championship logos over the years. But in this case, uh, we are not doing that work. What I'm there to do is essentially I'll be signing and uh, selling posters in the merchandise tent uh, for a few days. I've got an appearance at one of the local pubs uh, for a, a raffle and an auction uh, on Thursday night. And then I'm going to be doing a little painting on the golf course, sort of mainly for social media. But, uh, you know, I'll paint a, a, a little painting, a little watercolor out there on the golf course like I did at the uh, at the Open at St. Andrews last summer. Very cool. I think I saw some of those videos. So that's awesome. And so kind of talking about your creative process a little bit. So how do these portraits come about and how does the creative process kind of kick off for you and your team, which I also want to hear more about your team and how you've expanded from kind of being mm -hmm. solo dolo. But first question, I guess, is how does your creative process kick off? Because are you, like you said, are you at the actual course, like looking at things, sketching things as you're watching things happen? But how does that work for you? Well, it depends on the project. I mean, artistically speaking uh, or art wise, we offer or we I sort of do two main things, uh, private commissions for golf clubs and then these major championship and other types of event posters. Uh, I think the posters are sort of what get the most eyes just because, you know, I, I'm a, I work for the, be the biggest events in the sport. So a lot more people see those than see sort of the club portraits I do. So to focus on, for example, the U.S. Open poster this year, I go to the venue nine months to a year in advance. In the case of LACC, I created, uh, I created artwork for the Walker Cup uh, at LACC back in 2017. And that was an uh, amazing experience all by itself. That was my first introduction to the, to the club. And I, I, it sounds like you're kind of new to golf, meaning I think I've heard that you've taken it up over the last few years. Um, and I can remember that. And I can remember being bitten by the bug and jumping in with both feet and learning as much as you can about every aspect of the game from, from which clubs were first to, you know, what the latest clubs are. Um, but, you know, you quickly ascertain that there's, a mis there's this mystique element in golf uh, and there's a lot of clubs around the world that have somehow or another, whether it's a great logo or a great architect or, or both in the case of LACC or, or Marion or, or something like that. But there's these places that you just hear about and you, you know, and I'd never gotten to LACC until I was there uh, to, to do field work for the artwork for the Walker cup. And it completely blew my mind. I mean, I had never seen an inland course like this at all. And, it like vaulted to my top three right away. And uh, going back again to do the work for this year's US Open, uh, I was only sort of reaffirmed my impressions. It's just such a unique experience. The topography is amazing. The routing and the golf design and architecture on that topography is amazing. Uh, you have like Lionel Richie's house on one hole. You've got the Playboy Mansion on another hole and then you know, this amazing clubhouse with skyscrapers behind it. And you're in downtown LA. I mean, it's just this, this amazing juxtaposition of uh, disparate, but beautiful elements. So anyways, uh, sorry, the creative process, this was sort of an extreme because not every place knocks your socks off, you know, some places you got to look a little harder to find 
you know, the really neat little, you know, the, the good views or, or the views that no one's seen a million times already. But here was this dramatic, like visually incredibly dramatic golf course that really no one had seen before. So I could kind of do do whatever uh, whatever we wanted. So uh, the creative process generally works with me getting to know the place as much as possible. I'll spend a day or two with a sketchbook and a camera, a golf cart and a ladder, and I'll just sort of meander all over the property and the, specifically in the mornings and the afternoon evenings when the light is better. And I'll just sort of look at everything that seems interesting and really try and get to know it. Usually by halfway through the first day, I've got my feelings about what direction I want to go. But I kind of feel like due diligence is a big part of my approach. And I really do like to look at everything because a lot of what I do, I mean, when you go to a place like Aaron Hills that, that no one's ever seen, um, you know, you can show anything that looks dramatic. But if you're going to Oakmont or Pinehurst and places that people, or Pebble, for example, places people know very well, then, then the job becomes a little tougher to find something really original. A lot of times I feel like my work is finding new ways to tell a familiar story, or it's almost like, you know, the ch like if you go to Oakmont, it's hard not to do something with the church pews or the clubhouse, you know, because that's what, the, that's what moves the needle with the, the, layman, the, the layman at large, you know, the general golf population, right? So, so then you kind of feel like you're, you're a jazz singer and you're just sort of doing your version of an old standard in a way, you know? So I feel like Oakmont was a great example of that. You know, when I went there for 2016, it was pretty fresh off of that massive tree removal project. So the two things I just mentioned, suddenly there was a view of the church views and the clubhouse in the distance that hadn't been there for 70 years, you know? So that's what you do. Yep. Awesome. And so you mentioned all these beautiful clubs, right? And you're right. I am new to golf the last few years and I, I haven't visited some of these places, but I, I got the bug and the itch and I'm, I'm trying to explore as much as I possibly can. But you mentioned your top three. So I'd love to hear your top three clubs that oh, you've man. worked at or have, have painted. I mean, it's, it's really like everyone says, impossible to pick. But uh, for me, like if I were to pick top three US, uh, I would say... Oh, yeah, man. I would probably L.A., Marion, and Fisher's Island would probably be my my current top three. I mean, okay, it's hard to squeeze Pine Valley out of that top three because it's got all that. It's got, you know, the amazing mystique, the amazing golf course. You're in another world when you step on the property over there. But if you got to leave one out, I mean – one of the three has to be near water because to tell you the truth, like golf near the water is, is real golf, you know, like that's, that's where it makes the most sense. That's where it kind of, that's where it appeals to me the most. It's often the most beautiful. That's where it started. So I always feel like, you know, golf by water is hard to beat. So you got to have a, a little bit of water in your top three, but Marion, I, I was born right next door. I'm a big history fan. I love the winners at Marion and I love the, the tradition at Marion uh, of hosting championship golf. I really feel like, uh, you know, contrasting that with LACC, for example. I mean, no one's seen it. LACC, everyone knows it's been a great golf course for a hundred and some years, but they haven't hosted anything because they, they're a member's club. And that's the, the choice that they make. And, and, you know, more power to them. But then there are also these great clubs like Oakmont, Marion, and Shinnecock that, where the members decide that it's important to sort of give back to the game and to let the world in and to share their course with, uh, you know, with the greatest players and the greatest fans in the world. And, and I think Marion's a really great example of a course that's really just at every decade, it's had amazing champions and championships. You can really hear your passion for what you do and, and your answers and golf and the sport in general. And I feel like a lot of times when, when golf fans talk about golf, they put, Augusta National down in Georgia as the Holy Grail, right? Um, so have you have you worked there? Have you worked at Augusta? Well, regrettably, I'm not at liberty to discuss any of that. Okay, <laughs> got it, got it. Yeah, because I'm just curious how that stacks up across like the, uh, the your top three and how that would fit in. But I mean, you can do a, a quick uh, a quick internet search uh, would 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 inform uh, or would give you the answer to that question, but uh, I'm, I'm not able to talk about it. 
Got it. Got it. No worries. So is there any courses out there that you haven't worked on that you're dreaming, like the holy grail that you want to hit? Cypress Point. Cypress Point. Easy peasy. Where is that? Uh, in Monterey. Uh, it's just around the corner from Pebble Beach, literally. Uh, it's just around the point. It's, you know, it's the Pine Valley of the West. Hey, Alistair McKenzie uh, golf course on the cliffs uh, and beaches and dunes of, well, not cliffs, in the dunes of, uh, of the Monterey Peninsula. It's, uh, I've been on the property and, and toured it. Uh, it's spectacularly beautiful. McKenzie, you know, hard to, like, there's a, I, I'm a big fan of different architects. I don't know how, like, far you've gone down that, like, golf geek path yet, but it's, yeah. it's big now. I mean, it's great. Social media has really sort of uh, uh, thrown gas on the fire with that conversation. Like, back in, you know, the 90s, like, you know, you had to be more, a lot more of a geek to, uh, to know who uh, A.W. Tillinghast or Donald Ross was. Uh, but nowadays, they're, like, in the mainstream vocabulary, uh, which is great. But, I, you know, I'm a big fan of a lot of the different architects. But, you know, I, I, I would agree with the general consensus that McKenzie had sort of that unique ability to blend his artistry with the landscape in this sort of just beautiful and seamless manner. You know, a lot of the other Golden Age architects, even when they worked with the land in a very, you know, how would you say, like deep and cooperative way, their green complexes and things would have a very like Seth Rayner, for example, you know, they, they look extremely contrived, like they look artificial. There's no, there's no effort to sort of make them look natural, you know? And I think that that's the beauty of those types of features is that they, they just have so much personality. I mean, there's, there's nothing like some of the great bunkers and great green complexes of like Tillinghast or Thomas or, or, or Ross, but Mackenzie just definitely sort of massaged his courses into the land really artfully. And um, I think that shows beautifully at Cypress Point. And uh, I've not even played it yet. It's uh, hopefully one of one of their members will be listening to this and we'll drop you a line. We'll get the message out there. So speaking of playing a little bit, I mean, being at all these courses, I, I hope you get to get on them at some points. But how is your golf game? Are you are you a great golfer being around the game for so long and, and being so into it? No, man, I wish. I'm about where you are. I'm like hovering around 11 or 12 right now. It's um, uh, I started late in life in some respects. And so I have a few young kids uh, that kind of uh, keep me off the course a little bit. Running your own business is certainly... You can say a lot of good things about it, but, uh, you know, you, you generally feel like you're always on the clock. And uh, there's like the other old cliche, like if you love golf, don't get in the golf business. You yeah. know, uh, I, I'm going to be probably the busiest I am all year in the next few few months. So here we are, like with me dying to, to go play after a long, snowy winter. And, uh, you know, I've played twice this year so far, and, and I won't be squeezing in too many rounds and, and until after the U.S. Open, probably. So uh, I love it, though, to, to answer your question with uh, more positivity. I love to play. I love to practice. Uh, I Like you, I took it up like kind of as an adult. Uh, work brought me to golf, so I took it up as a single guy in my 20s, and I practiced like crazy. I mean, I just played as much as I could at that time, so... I'm always a little jealous of the guys or, or the people that learned when they were young because I feel like they they can always go out there and find a swing. Whereas, you know, if I don't play for six months, I could only basically hit it sideways. <laughs> you got to restart from scratch. I feel like everyone's answer too is like, oh, like, do you play a lot of golf? They're like, <laughs> their answer is always going to be not enough. No matter, no matter how much you play, there's the answer to that question is I don't play enough golf. So... Yeah, I'm fully addicted. I have the bug and I'm 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 in my mid twenties now and I do always feel like I need to be on the clock work and grow in the sports media business, but I am also trying to get on the course as much as possible. Well, so hopefully good. that can continue. Good. So for you though, are you looking to ever do products outside of golf or is that your niche, that's your lane? Or do you have products that you aspire to do that are outside of the world of golf? Yeah, I mean I always have sort of wish list jobs, I call it. Um we do a little bit of work outside of golf and, and kind of always have whenever it's come up. I mean, I've done uh, artwork for the largest collegiate uh, crew regatta uh, in the country, uh, the Dad Vale in Philadelphia. I've done artwork for the NBA All-Star Game. 
The last three years, I've created the official poster for the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters Tennis Tournament in Monaco. And for the last five or six years now, I create the art for the spring and fall races at Keeneland in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, thoroughbred horse racing. So um, we like to sort of do things where, uh, what would you say, the genre suits my style or my style suits the genre. Uh, you know, certain things like the all the NBA All-Star game was really fun, but I didn't feel like, you know, my look and the NBA were like a natural fit necessarily. I think I would crush it with baseball, for example, which has sort of a more of a, I don't know what you'd call it, more of a focus on tradition and legacy and history and things like that. I feel like, you know, the NBA and, and the NFL is much more urban, contemporary, forward-looking, different aesthetic, different culture to it, you know. But like horse racing, it was a perfect thing. I feel like tennis. I, so in the world of tennis, I mean, I played tennis as a as a young person, and I love the game. And Wimbledon and the U.S. Open would be, you know, my my first two answers for wish list jobs that I'd like to do. That we've had chats about both, and uh, with any luck, uh, you know, stars will align. But probably my biggest wish list project would be something really different, which would be to create the official poster for the New Orleans Jazz Festival or the Newport Folk Festival or one of these big old music festivals. I think I think that would be really fun. Yeah, those are awesome goals, and I feel like you could accomplish them. So you talked about your team a little bit. So I, I know I asked this question a little bit, but so tell me about that. How has that transition been? How big are you guys now and kind of what are the different roles and and different portions of the company right now well we're still i mean obviously a small boutique organization here so we are one two three four five five to six people um uh with me uh which you know doesn't sound like a lot but for a couple of years 20 years ago the business was just me so uh it's uh, it's expanded and contracted over the years but uh it's currently uh in I mean, head and shoulders in the best iteration uh, of our business that we've ever seen and kind of feels like we're riding a rocket right now. Um, there's just, we're as busy as we can be and great jobs keep coming in. And I've been able to slowly learn to say no to some of sort of the middling jobs, you know, if I can't fit them in. Uh, but if a great job comes in, it's, you know, I don't care how busy you are, you sort of find find five more hours in the day somehow so uh, there's a lot of great stuff going on and and what's helped us to sort of take on more work is both our design uh, and create well every aspect of our team but me having to do less of everything else first of all because i'm generally a bottleneck in anything that we do i mean anything that doesn't go through me gets done a lot more quickly. <laughs> uh, so uh, the more we can sort of have other people handle with autonomy, uh, the better. So uh, we've worked really hard over the last several years on the creative side to, I want to say train, but really like, you know, we, I, have a, I have a very clear look to my work. You know, there's, there's colors and paints that I work with. Uh, there's sort of inspirations that are consistent in all of my work, so influences. So basically uh, everyone on the creative team has sort of absorbed that very, very thoroughly now. And uh, uh, Inga, our senior designer, has been with, with the company the longest. Um, and uh, she can, she'll, she'll finish some of the paintings, literally, in terms of uh, once I have most like 90, she can, she'll help with some of the preliminary blocking in and then some of the very, very final like type and border and detail work. Um, so, um, and then uh, we have another designer, Christina, who who helps with virtually every single logo that uh, we work on, uh, spend some time uh, on Christina's desk and, and in her hands. And then she's doing more and more uh, of the execution on some of the art products as well. My wife, Jamie, joined the, joined the business formally in 15 and she's had just a remarkable uh, impact on business in terms of, she won't like me saying it, but she was a Hall of Fame point guard. So she's basically someone who, without knowing anything about art or golf, had an immediate impact on the business and made everything happen more efficiently, uh, more quickly, cut out redundancies. Um, and, and then she figured out, she, she now, in addition to sort of handling our business operations, 
Um, she also really spearheads our e-commerce platform, which has become a real leg of the chair, you know, like, um, 10 years ago, our, our, our inter, you know, our website, you know, we sold a few posters now and then, but, um, uh, you know, it was nothing too compelling. It was sort of a little bit of extra icing on the cake. Now, uh, it's really grown into, you know, it's a, it's a very, very important and meaningful segment in our business. And, um, uh, social media, online presence, online advertising, and e-commerce all all fall under her umbrella. And then, uh, and then we have some guys who basically—it's not exactly a warehouse, but you know, a lot of our art product and posters and prints are—they physically exist, you know. So we've got a a, a small warehouse space with stacks of uh, different posters from different events over the last twenty years. I mean, drawers and drawers full of original artwork uh that will be in some museum someday i hope but uh yeah that's the team i that's about it occasionally have two dogs or more in the studio but uh right now it's just uh it's just our our, our little uh, golden doodle rosie here today mm. sounds like a lean and mean team and being busy is a great thing and when you get to that point in your business that you can say no to projects i think that's a great thing so yeah it's cool to hear that and uh i guess congrats on the success lee one final question before diving into some rapid fire you talk about how you have more of a sense of a traditional take on your pieces right so i guess my question is do you have some certain message that you like to try to convey in your artwork that's consistent across all of your work or is it kind of every piece is different you never know what is going to turn out but is there that one specific message that you try to convey in all your artwork? I don't know if, I mean, I'm tempted to say that, um, you know, I try and find the star of the show in the subject. Like I didn't really get very far in talking about my creative process, but like, for example, going back to LACC and the U S open poster, when I first visit a site, I try and find out what I think are the two or three key aspects or attributes of the venue you know uh in the case of chambers bay there were more than three i think that you had chambers bay you had amazing dramatic bunkering uh you had the puget sound it's right like you had you know the golf course is right on the water so you couldn't not show the water the olympic mountains in the distance which are like snow covered in may and june you could see those in the distance uh and then you had the train you know so Essentially, what I try and do is I try and identify the two or three key elements that I think tell the story. And then I find a view or maybe manufacture a view, but typically not because golf is fairly literal audience. You know what I mean? Like no one wants to see things that obviously aren't accurate. You know what I mean? Like if it's the 12th at Augusta, it better look like the 12th at Augusta. You know, like no one wants to see fantasy really. 100%. So anyways, I... I if I take a little bit of artistic license now and then, it's usually in subtle ways to just subtly improve the picture. It's not to make something up out of whole cloth, you know? So I try and identify the two or three things. I, I always put it in the same metaphor. There, there's a star and then there's one or two supporting actors. And that's that's what I try and, and, and identify. And that's what I try and showcase in my work. So uh, if you were to say what is consistent in my approach throughout the paintings, I would say that, that that approach remains, even if I'm doing a more detailed landscape, I kind of strip out the inessential stuff and really celebrate the essential stuff. And what that does, I think, is give my work sort of a iconic, idyllic feel. Like I try and create pictures that make you wish that you were there or that kind of a thing or feel like you are there almost, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, generally, I'm not painting golf courses in like open championship gale force winds and sideways rain. I'm I'm painting the scene to, you know, to pull you in and to celebrate the client. I mean, if there's any other messaging, it's it's my client's messaging, which is, you know, I try and make sure that the open poster doesn't look like the PGA poster doesn't look like the U.S. open poster. I mean, these are all epic events with, you know incredible histories all their own and i really try and do a proper service and justice to you know the subject that's at hand yeah you're making me jealous or 
feel bad that I don't have anything on my walls, but it would be dangerous we'll because you're describing this artwork. I'm going to be looking at this stuff and I'm be like, I need to be on that course right at this second. Well, I'll send you last year's US Open poster. You will get a Brookline picture behind you. Oh, oh, you, you were at Brookline? Yeah, I was there for the whole ride. It was uh, spectacular. Boston turned out, man. I mean, uh, we all know Boston's reputation as a sports town, but boy, oh boy. I got to say, it felt like I signed posters for, I mean, not everyone gets their poster signed, uh, but a lot of people do. And I, every one of those people is usually a short little chat. And I got to say, nine out of 10 customers were from within 10 miles of Brookline. I mean, Boston was yep. everywhere. It was wild. Yep. Yeah. Boston sports fans, they show out, they show out. Well, no, it's been fantastic talking with you. And again, I, I love hearing the passion for what you do and all your answers and it's cool to see. So some rapid fire here. You can go one word, one phrase, take as long as you want, but we'll dive right in. Who is your favorite athlete growing up as a kid? Dr. J. J. Who's your favorite athlete in current day sports? Huh. That's a tough one there. I'm got to admit, I'm kind of a fair weather sports fan, you know, so uh, my tendency is going to be, I mean, fair enough. Uh, I pay attention to most sports during the playoffs. You know, my Philly, my Philly uh, tribalism comes out. Joel Embiid, I'm so glad he got the MVP this year. He's he's definitely my guy. Like, I, I love how he has, like, been, been – he's just been a great leader for the Sixers. So, I'm a huge fan of him. Uh, and then I got to give a golf answer, too, because I, I think about it a lot because I love rooting for, for different golfers. But I kind of re recently realized that Spieth might have evolved into my favorite just because he's such a roller coaster ride. And the one thing that everyone yes. loves about Tiger, I feel like uh, – I mean, aside from just the endless winning, I mean – Everybody loves that, but yeah. but he had that Jordan esque flair for for the dramatic. Like he, when he needed to make like this ridiculous flop shot, not only would he make it, but he'd hold it, you know. And I feel like Spieth is kind of the only guy out there who really consistently makes miracle shots, uh, and lots of times when it counts. So uh, I love that. So he, he's definitely one of my fan, one of my faves for that reason. I'm a huge Spieth guy as well, and I'll take those answers. But Joel Embiid. I respect him as a player and athlete, but he is destroying my Celtics right now. So, oh man, uh, I totally forgot. It's a good thing we didn't we didn't talk about it that at the beginning. This conversation yeah. hasn't gone so well. This podcast is going to come out after the facts, but the Celtics and Sixers are currently in a playoff series, and the Sixers are down are up three two. So I, I'm scared. So we'll One see what happens. Two. Don't you got to tell the whole story, Danny. After being down two one. <laughs> yes, this is correct. This is correct. So I'm going to make you give another golf answer here. So who is your dream foursome? So you get to pick three other players. They don't have to be professional golfers. They could be anyone. They could be family members, celebrities, whomever. But who is your dream foursome to play golf with? So I got to confess uh, that I anticipated this question because I listened to your interview with, with Will Zalatoris. And because I'm bad, I'm, I'm like his coach. I don't usually have off the cuff answers. So I thought about it, but. Trevino, first of all. There you go. I mean, dude, I, I love watching the old videos of him in his heyday winning the Open and the U.S. Open. And there is literally nobody uh -huh. like that on the planet right now who, who goes out and, like, plays clutch golf in between wisecracks to the crowd. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Uh, and then uh, my contemporary uh, selections would be Jason Bateman and Will Arnett from Smartless. You know that show and those guys? Those are good. I know I know those guys. I actually don't know the show. Oh, check it out. It's no, like I, a I don't know the show. Hugely popular podcast with all these amazing guests and but the guests aren't the thing. It's almost like the banter between these three guys is kind of the uh the whole shtick. But Bateman and Arnett are golf fanatics. I think they're Bel Air members and they're always talking about golf and uh and they keep me cracking up while I paint. So I, I would love to get out there with them. <laughs> I will definitely check out the podcast. Always looking to check out other shows and how they're yeah. approaching the space. So I, I will. It's all entertainment space, you know? Yeah, it's all the same. So, a few more. Who is your favorite music artist? I'm so old, but uh, Bob Dylan, gotta say. My Dylan, my, the Beatles when I was a kid, my holy trinity was uh, Dylan, Neil Young, and Tom Waits. 
But I mean, if I don't know what the hell to put on when I come in like the studio on a Saturday morning and I don't want to be here, I'll put on some Dylan just to ease on into it. It's kind of always my go-to. You usually do your work with other sounds on the background. You said you listen to podcasts, music, or is it like you you do your best work when it's kind of silent? I mean, I, I do work in silence sometimes just for variety, but... Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing you never realize, like no one tells you, you know, if you're going to be an artist or an illustrator or something like this, that, you know, it's a lot of solitary time. It's a lot of time between your own ears. And um, I'm fairly introverted and introspective in general. Uh, so uh, it gets to be a little bit excessive. So, I mean, there's times where I get in quietly in the zone and I like that, but it's usually a question of whether I'm going to have, what am I going to have on in the background? Uh, whether it's going to be some talk stuff, uh, music. I mean, I used to have movies on in the background, in fact. I mean, I find that Westerns are really good movies to have on because you don't really have to watch a Western to know what's happening. You can just listen to it. <laughs> Whereas other types of shows, you know, you end up looking all the time and then you're not painting it. So I've books on tape. I've listened to a lot of books on tape. Less silence anymore. That's good. Favorite artist? So, like, who is your idol, I guess, in the space growing up, or maybe it's someone new today? I mean, I've got such an eclectic mix because that's what I was into. But um, my original reason for drawing was comic books. So some of my heroes were, like, the, the artists that invented Spider-Man, Steve Ditko. Or, you know, Jack Kirby, the, the artist that like drew Captain America for the 60s and the 70s. You know, the whole Marvel universe. So this is kind of a funny aside that I'll try and keep brief. But uh, again, something nobody knows is that although I've been called Lee by my parents from the day I was born, my birth name is Stanley Wybranski, and I'm named after my father. And my father hated the name. Uh, so he didn't want to call me that, but my mom insisted. So they decided they'll call me Lee, right? But anyways, as a kid, my name was Stan Lee. And Stan Lee was the founder and publisher of Marvel Comics, who invented all of these characters. And in fact, he used to have cameos in all, all the Marvel movies um, until he passed away recently. Anyways, um, Sorry, long-winded digression there, but comic book artists uh, in the beginning, uh, art school-wise, I think if there's one fine artist that influences my work the most, it's um, Edward Hopper, who is famous. His most famous painting is probably Nighthawks at the Diner. He also did a very, very famous painting of a, a lighthouse on Cape Cod, um, but one of the great, great American painters mid-century most of the artists and influences that find their way into my work now uh, are probably like early to mid 20th century influences, whether it's the great travel wow. posters from the 20s or the national park posters from the 30s, uh, the famous British railway posters also from the 20s and the 30s. Like there's something about that time that really tickles my fancy, I guess. I mean, I have a lot of other things that I like, but, you know, I like abstract art, but I'm not an abstract painter. I mean, it's like trying to speak a different language to me. I, I just, so, you know, I might love Picasso, but you're not going to find Picasso in my golf posters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love it. That's a great answer. And so two more here. What is your biggest fear? It's always a tricky one. And I'll never break 80 again. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't broke 80 so um, I, I, I've only I'm, done it a couple of times and it's been a lot of years sad yeah yeah okay that's a good fear to have I like that one that's a new one I've gotten last one what is one word that best describes you neurotic <laughs> <laughs> uh, no that's, I take that back I mean I am neurotic but that's not the number one word I would say creative that's literally what I was going to say I throughout this interview I was like I I think he's going to say creative because ah, it's true. And it, I can see it. So that's a great answer. Well, I hate to be predictable, but <laughs> no, 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 not predictable at all. This has been one of my most fascinating, unique conversations I've had on the podcast. So I appreciate it. And at the end of every Pass the Torch podcast we have, we, we all wrap all the lessons and themes we talked about kind of in one final question. So the final question here is if you could take one lesson that you've learned throughout your journey and your career that you could pass along to the next generation 
what would that one lesson be to help them accomplish their dreams? I guess it's just stay in the game. Um, there's a tendency, especially when you're young and growing up, like, you know, I've got kids now and I, there's a tendency to think that things are always going to be the way they are. Uh, and the things that are, that are oppressing you or that you're struggling with at this point are always going to be there and they're always going to be oppressing you. And, and what you don't know when you're young is the land changes beneath your feet. Uh, circumstances shift and evolve. And sometimes like, I just, I, I think I stole that from uh, that Ali movie when we were Kings and rope dope. But sometimes, you know, your only job is to go in there and, and, and keep on your feet, keep the car on the road and that's it. And, you know, you got to work hard and it helps to have a vision and it helps to have goals. But as someone who sort of took a meandering path to where I am now, um, there were many moments where I really questioned whether I was like, am I like following my dreams or am I wasting my time, you know? And like, that's why I told you, to me personally, a lot of people told me that they liked my work. So that made me feel like I was doing something right. And it took me, I mean, I must not be the sharpest tool in the shed because people like my work for 15 years and I could barely make a living, you know? But, but uh, anyways, sometimes you just got to stay in the game and, and let, let the game come to you and, uh, and don't expect to like, you know, have all the answers every damn day, you know? Right. Whoever can, sometimes whoever can stay on the treadmill the longest um, will, will succeed. And so it's just take every day, day by day, step by step and one foot after the other and you'll get there. So um, that's a great message, Lee. It's been awesome talking to you. I'm excited to dive into more of your work and maybe have it hanging up on my walls here shortly. We'll get something up there, man. That wall hurts my eyes. <laughs> it hurts me too. It hurts me. And I'm excited to see the uh, PGA Championship piece coming up. That should be an awesome project from you and the team. So yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch and looking forward to uh, your future and your work. Thank you, Danny. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pass the Torch. I appreciate all of you for sitting through this today's episode. I hope you learned something. Hope you were inspired. Hope you laughed a little bit. And we hope to see you next time as well. We have some fantastic, some just absolutely fantastic interviews coming up that you will not want to miss. So make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening. And as always, if you want to see our beautiful faces during these interviews, go to our Torch Pro YouTube channel. Subscribe there. There's a lot of other content that I know you guys will love and enjoy, including the Morning Blitz newsletter. If you guys got through this episode without subscribing to the Morning Blitz, well, you got to go to TorchPro.com right now and subscribe to the Morning Blitz. It's sports learning email. Everything you need to know about the world of sports delivered right to your email inbox. So go check it out, please. Thank you guys again for sitting through another episode of Pass the Torch, and we will see you next time. We're out. <laughs>